This time we'll now read in the book of Mark. And let's turn now to Mark chapter 9. We'll be beginning the scripture reading at verse 1 and read through verse 29 of Mark chapter 9. Because of the length of the text, which is verses 14 through 27, I won't read that a second time as customarily we do. We'll be reading verses 1 through 29 and then move right into the sermon. Here in Mark chapter 9 we read this word of God. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist or knew not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught. But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. Now the words of our text. And when he came to his disciples, he saw a great multitude about them, and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I brought unto thee my son, which hath a dumb spirit, and wheresoever he taketh him, he teareth him, and he foameth, and gnasheth with his teeth, and pineth away. And I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. He answereth him, and saith, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it, how long is it to go since this came unto him? And he said, Of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. 
When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore, and came out of him, and he was as one dead, insomuch that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, This kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. That's as far as you read in the word of God. May he bless us in the reading of scripture. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read in the beginning of chapter 9, Jesus had been transfigured in the presence of Peter, James, and John, which meant that for a moment, for a brief period of time, he received, as you children memorize in your New Testament catechism, he received heavenly glory. For a brief moment of time, he tasted the heavenly glory he would receive on the other side of the cross, the resurrection from the dead, and then in his ascension into heaven. And in that transfiguration of Jesus, there was plainly revealed to the disciples and through Scripture to us that this Jesus is the Son of God. He is what the disciples had confessed in chapter 8, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then they saw, with their own eyes, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord, the Son of God, in His glory for a brief moment. And they saw that would be His through, though they did not understand that fully yet, through Jesus would tell them in verses 30 through 32, through his death and his suffering at the hands of wicked men, but then his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven. And there came a voice out of the cloud that said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him, or hear him. This is my son, this is my servant, whom I have sent to deliver my people from their sin. And especially from the viewpoint of the book of Mark, the Lord declares, this is my son, my servant, who is my chief prophet and teacher. Come to reveal my name, come to speak my word. Hear him, hear his word. For that truth, plainly established by the transfiguration of Christ before Peter, James, and John, the Lord with his disciples returns to the city of Capernaum, where the other nine disciples were still present. While Jesus and his disciples were absent, a crowd had gathered around those nine disciples and were focused on a problem for the disciples. In that crowd, in particular, had come some scribes from Jerusalem who at this point in the ministry of Jesus were insistent on finding some fault with the ministry of Jesus. They had discovered and observed that a man came with his teenage son and asked the disciples if they could cast the devil out of that son. But they could not. As they had done before, they could not this time. It's not possible. And the scribes noticed that, and you can imagine secretly rejoiced that they had found an opportunity to not only rail against the disciples, but also to discredit the ministry of Jesus and to see and to show others, you see, this Jesus of Nazareth, of whom you are the disciples, he does not speak that powerful word. He does not speak the truth. Is not truly the servant of God. Use that as an occasion to dishonor the prophetic ministry 
of Christ. That arguing and that vaunting of the enemies of Christ over that apparent failure of the disciples came to a sudden end when Jesus came down from the mountain with Peter, James, and John and asked his questions to them. He asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And notice in the text, there is no answer. Now remember, Jesus doesn't ask this question because he didn't know what was going on. That's not why. He asks this question, what question ye with them in verse 16? Because they, the scribes, must be called into account for what they have done with Christ and what they have done with his word. And in answer to Jesus' question, they say nothing. They will not answer. They will not give account, or at least they think they will not give an account. They are hardened in their unbelief. They will not hear him and bow before him and submit to his word. But then later in the text, Jesus asks another question to the father this time and with his dear son and his problem. And again, Jesus does not ask the father his question about his son because Jesus didn't know what was going on with this father and the turmoil in his soul and didn't know what was going on with the son and the tyranny that he suffered under the hands of the devil that possessed him. Oh no. Remember, Jesus knows his sheep by name. They did not need to wear a name tag and inform Jesus, well, I am this father and this is my name and this is my son here. Jesus knows the names of his people from eternity. He knows your name. We don't need to introduce ourselves to him tonight. He knows you. He asked this question of the Father, not because he didn't know him or know his problem. He asked that question to bring out of this man his work, his wonder work of salvation so that this man would learn in his mind and heart what he needed, who could supply that only need, and so that he might then, knowing that wonder, go forth as a faithful prophet of the Lord in the office of believer and go and tell the great things that the Lord has done for us just as the man in Mark chapter 5 was sent to do. Go home and tell the great things that the Lord has done for you, which is our calling as God's prophets and our daily witness. That helps us, beloved, to answer the main question behind the text and its connection with the previous event of the transfiguration of Jesus. How is it possible, God says from heaven, When the cloud surrounds Jesus in his glory, this is my beloved son, verse 7, and then the command is, hear him. And that's directed to us too and our children. Hear him. There's the Lord in his heavenly glory, not here in the text on a mountain, but now at God's right hand. This is my only begotten son, my beloved son, the Christ. Hear him. How is that possible? How does that become a reality? And how does that continue to be a reality? How is that sustained day by day and from generation to generation? How do we receive, how do our children receive faith to believe, to hear, understand, and then to speak? And confess the name of the Lord. Jesus answers that question when he brings out of this Father, as he does to us also. He brings out of us that confession concerning Christ and his faith-sustaining and necessary word, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. 
That's verse 24. We'll call your attention to the text under that theme. A believing cry for Jesus' faith-sustaining word. Notice, first of all, the demonstrated need. Then secondly, the earnest cry. Then finally, the confirming miracle which is given by Jesus as the answer to that believing cry of this father, this believing father. What was the outstanding need that was presented before Jesus when he came down from the mountain there in Capernaum? The outstanding need was, of course, in the Father and the Son. Which might be a surprising answer because we would think, well, reading about what happens to this teenage boy when Jesus heals him and the story of what had gone on since his childhood as given by the Father, that surely the great and outstanding need is to be found in the Son. Well, there is, there is truth to the fact that this Son had a very outstanding need. Since his childhood, we learn that he had major problems. He would be overcome, as some commentators explain, overcome with seizures which involved terrifying convulsions and contortions and being on the ground and wiggling around uncontrollably, foaming at the mouth, as the Father relays to Jesus in the text, which would have been, if we would have observed that, a very unpleasant experience to see. But then think of the young man in that experience. How terrifying, how difficult. And besides all of that, he was unable to speak. He could make noises, as we discover when the devil leaves him at the miracle, but he could not speak. He could not say to his parents, I love you, at night before he went to sleep. Could not pray to the father at night before he went to the sleep. He could not speak. Didn't know language. And he was deaf. He couldn't hear. Could never hear his parents say, I love you, before he went to sleep at night. Could not hear them recite to him the word of God or the Psalms. He's deaf due to this devil possession that afflicted him. He was under the tyranny of the devil through one of his lower devils, unable to control his hearing and his speaking and even his muscles in those terrible convulsions which he experienced. So that as his, as his father said, he pineth away. He was wearing out physically, emotionally, but also spiritually. Wearing away in this lonely, lonely suffering. For who of his friends in the town in which he lived, who would become his friend? He's a very dangerous young man. Casting himself into the fire, into the water, trying to drown himself, or having the devil trying to drown him. Very lonely young man. We would say after reading what the Father says to Jesus about him, Now that's the outstanding need. And that's really not true. The Father, as well as the Son, had a need, but more outstanding than what this Son had. That becomes clear when we look at this text in the light of the context where Jesus is transfigured before his disciples. He receives a foretaste, a little piece of that heavenly glory, which is his. It is sure to be his through his way of humiliation and suffering. He must have that glory. The Father promised it to him. That was the promise of the Father, his word, concerning which he swore an oath. Christ was in his heavenly glory and must receive that heavenly glory as the Lord. From that viewpoint, When we read about what the Father says to Jesus, it's very clear what his need is. Now, although this man did not know about the transfiguration, he did hear of the truth which the transfiguration confirmed very plainly. He had heard that Jesus had power over the devils, having cast out devils earlier in his ministry. He had heard of the doctrine of Jesus and the parables of the Lord. 
Yet he has, in spite of hearing the truth and seeing the Lord set forth in his preaching as the Christ, still had this outstanding need which comes to light in verse 22. It says at the end of verse 22, having described what happens to his son in this anguish over the affliction of his son under that tyranny of that devil possession, he says, but if thou canst do anything, have compassion or mercy on us and help us. Not just me or him, but us. That little word, if, in this case, is a problem. The word here means not sure, possible, maybe. Maybe Jesus has the ability. He might have the mercy. The one who has, who has been given the token of the covenant in circumcision and shown that in the Passover repeatedly to that believer and his seed, that household in the Old Testament church, the house of Israel, well, maybe he will have mercy. Maybe he has the ability to cast out that devil and to deliver that child from the tyranny of the devil. Maybe. Not sure. In his mind, it was only a possibility Maybe Jesus could deliver him from the power of the devil, but not completely sure Christ had the ability, the mercy to do so. According to what he heard in the gospel preached or what we see in the transfiguration, if, That, beloved, demonstrates the need, which Jesus pinpoints earlier in the passage in verse 19. He says, he came down from the mount, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? That applied, first of all, to three groups. Number one, to the scribes. How long shall I suffer you? Yes, they were faithless. They would not answer Jesus. They would not submit to his authority. They rejected him. They would not hear him. They hated him. And they were hardened in that hostility against Christ. And concerning them, Christ would forbear. As long as God in his purpose would use them to serve his death on the cross, his resurrection to serve that coming of the kingdom, which he mentions at the beginning of the chapter, in his death and resurrection. And then they would be destroyed. He would not deliver them. They would be used for his purpose. What Jesus says concerning them is a very, very sobering word. Condemnation to them. But secondly, regarding the second group to whom Jesus speaks, there are the disciples. There we wonder, is this really accurate? Because did not the disciples say in chapter 8, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You have that climax in chapter 8 of that clear confession of Christ. Having revealed his word and preached it faithfully, the disciples respond, Thou art the Christ. And now Jesus says to them, faithless? The answer is yes. For Judas Iscariot, of course, that was indeed true all the days of his life. Faithless. He was a reprobate, a son of perdition. But regarding the other 11 disciples, that was also true in the sense that they did not understand. They did not have the faith. They did not have the conviction regarding the kingdom of heaven and Christ over against the kingdom of darkness of which one of the devils had taken possession of this young man's will and his body. Concerning that affliction, that attack of the enemy of darkness on one of the sheep of Christ, 
They did not have the knowledge. They did not have the conviction of the power of Christ and His Word. Nevertheless, how long would Jesus suffer with them? He would be long-suffering to them in order to lead them, to work with them, and to bring them to the fullness of faith, which is shown in the third group, to whom this word in verse 19 applies, the Father himself. He demonstrates what the disciples also had, a lack of faith. Nevertheless, Jesus would also be long-suffering to him and shows that mercy to him by answering him and in his answer rebuking the man, correcting him to bring him to a proper understanding, a true faith in Christ. Jesus rebuked him in verse 24 and said, or verse 23, rather, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. What does that mean? It doesn't mean, as the, uh, the Pentecostals mean, uh, try to interpret this text, if you just believe anything's possible for you. That is not what Jesus meant at all. What he is saying here, if thou canst, he's quoting the Father. In verse 22, that's what the Father said, if thou canst. Jesus says, believing if thou canst, with regard to that statement which you have made in verse 22, if thou canst, I declare to you, all things are possible to him that believeth. All things, according to God's counsel, according to his commandments, yes, all things are possible to him that believeth, in Christ. And there Jesus corrects the man. The question here is never the ability of Jesus. It never is. The question is, do we believe that word and the power of Christ in his word? Jesus says concerning those who believe in me, According to my word, all things according to the will of God, the counsel of God and his commandments, all things are possible in me to those who believe. Yes. And that demonstrates our need, doesn't it? Our outstanding need tonight is not perhaps more money. Yes, we need money. But that's not our outstanding need tonight. We need clothing, don't we? That's not our outstanding need. Maybe some of you children are starting to get a little hungry. Yes, we need food. But that's still not your outstanding need. We need medicine when we're sick. Various other things from the health care and those who work in the healthcare industry for our healing. It's still not our outstanding need. Our outstanding need is made known when Jesus says, O oh, faithless generation. And we might object to the Lord and say, Now wait a minute. Faithless? This doesn't seem appropriate. That's too confrontational. Speaking to us this way. Well, beloved, if we object to what Jesus says and get a little uncomfortable and think, well, this is a bit too strong language to be speaking to us, this is what the Lord did say to us in chapter 4 and to his disciples. When Jesus and his disciples were in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, in the height of the storm, Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat or the ship, and the disciples cry out, Master, carest thou not that we perish? What does Jesus say to them? Don't we do the same thing in the storms of life, whatever they may be, how intense they may be? Master, carest thou not that we perish? What did the Lord say to you in that storm? He said to you and me, 
Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And that's the truth, isn't it? The problem isn't never the, is never the Lord in His glory to save you, to forgive your sin, to uphold you and to sustain you. His ability is unquestionably perfect. The problem and the need is here. Lack of believing. How is it that we have no faith? That's demonstrated very clearly by the miracle and its sign of what that son was enduring. That devil possession, the deafness, the muteness, could not hear, could not speak. And what he had was humanly impossible to correct. That's a sign of our need. In us is that total darkness of unbelief, apart from Jesus Christ. A lack of the knowledge of the truth. We're prone to the enemy of doubt. Of ourselves, we do not have the ability to hear him. And having heard him, then to speak what we have heard as faithful servants of the Lord, confessing his name. Being assured of his word and his promises. We do not have that ability of ourselves. And the boy, as he rises on the ground in his epileptic convulsions and cannot speak, he cannot hear, that's you and me. And unable to deliver ourselves from that misery. A little later, when the devil leaves, that young boy is dead. That's us. That's our need. And the Lord works this in the Father. He works that in us to see our great need and that apart from Jesus Christ, that's all we would be under the tyranny of the devil, unable to hear him, unable to speak his truth, unable to sing his praises with a believing heart and believing mind unto his glory. Not possible. We depend upon his We depend upon Christ and the grace of his word to save us, to heal us, to work in us that which we cannot work in us or our children, that gift of faith. That brings out of that man that earnest cry. The father believed and makes that confession of faith which he would teach his covenant son, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Notice the first part of that confession. Lord. Before he had called Jesus master, which was very honorable, very respectful, but there's a change. Not just Rabboni, master. He is the Lord says the same thing which the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is the Sovereign One. He has all power to calm the ways of the sea, to heal the blind, and so on. To do many things according to the Father's good pleasure. He has the power, the sovereignty to exercise His Word and to do, speaking that Word to immediately or straightway Bring it into reality. That power of the word is shown instantly when the Father speaks. Jesus says in verse 23, All things are possible to him that believeth in that word of the Lord. Because of that word of the Lord and because of the Lord himself, he says, I believe. That's the reality. He is Lord. Not just at God's right hand, but also in you and me, so that we believe. 
The devil is not Lord in his people. Christ is. And in that faith, the Father expresses, I know the truth. I know the word of God. I know this Christ to be the true prophet of Jehovah. And I not only know it, but also, secondly, I am convinced. Unlike I was just a few moments ago, but now I am convinced it's not a matter of if. He will, he can be merciful to me and my covenant children, to my household. I know him as our Lord, our God. He will help us in our need. That, beloved, is the gracious gift of the Lord to him. The Lord speaks. He believes. The Lord speaks his word. This man believes. And believes with a truth that is very wise. He understands. He is wise in that faith. For in the third place, he says in his confession, Help thou mine unbelief. In other words, be constantly helping me, Lord, with regard to this ever-present unbelief. And you'll notice right there, beloved, he submits to the word of the Lord back in verse 19 when the Lord says, faithless. And with tears he says, Lord, I believe, yes, it is true. Faithless. There is so much unbelief in me. And I cannot deliver myself from that unbelief. Yes, Lord, I believe. Do not leave me, nor forsake me. Help thou me. Be constantly helping me to overcome that ever-present unbelief. And isn't that our need, beloved, concerning which we cry out to the Lord? Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. We too, beloved, must see that he is the Lord. There is no if concerning Christ in your life. No, he is Lord. Period. His sovereignty, his wisdom, his power, his purpose in your life, unquestionably perfect and sure. He is the Lord. And he is your Lord. By his redeeming blood. And because he is your Lord. And my Lord. We believe. He teaches us his truth. He opens the ears. So that we may hear. He opens our eyes so that we may see him face to face. And then know him in his truth. As our chief prophet and teacher. And that chief prophet and teacher who works that knowledge in us in such a way in which we are convinced he is our Lord and our God. In that truth, we embrace him and trust in him. Nevertheless, we too know, as the Father did, when the Lord works in us the gift of faith, That's not the end of your unbelief. That's not the end of our sin. We also cry out unto the Lord, Help thou me with regard to my unbelief. I am still slow of heart, mind to understand thy word. So easily I am distracted from thy word. So quickly our understanding of the Reformed faith can be incorrect perhaps. We don't have everything straight in our minds, and our hearts. So quickly we can look at the commandments of God and think, well, I don't need to do this in this moment in my life. I am so tired at the end of the day, I think I will just look at these things. And well, the word of God says I may not do that. The commandments are clear, but I'm going to do it anyway. Out of unbelief, not submitting to the word of God, We walk in the paths of unrighteousness, of disobedience, 
And when it comes to the promises of God, where God promises us many things, daily bread, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, peace, His blessings upon us and our covenant children in the generations. Still much doubt, isn't there? Wonder when we're in a calamity, is this the Lord's punishment? We have much doubt concerning God's promises to us. And in that doubt, it's very easy for us to give up. I want to quit. Doing all this work in the kingdom, look at all the problems. We doubt whether it's even Worth the effort to labor in the causes of God's kingdom. The problem is our unbelief. We need the Lord. We cry out unto Him, Lord, help Thou me regarding my unbelief. Overcome. Destroy it. Work in me a certain knowledge of thy word and that hearty conviction that thou art my Lord and my Savior. Give me the grace to walk by faith with thee through life and faithfulness to thee in whatever station or calling in life thou hast given me in which I may serve thee as thy servant. We need the Lord, beloved, to work by His Word that true faith in Him. And we may wonder then, will the Lord answer us? Will He answer my prayers? Not just for me, but for my children. Will He work faith in them as we cry out to Him? And the Lord gives that answer in the confirming miracle. After drawing out the confession from that father of his need and that cry unto the Lord, the Lord continues to work that faith in his orderly way and turns to the boy, to the young man, to the teenager, and heals him. As the Lord, he turns to the young man and Jesus doesn't fret, doesn't get all Wound up, he simply turns to him, and as the prophet of Jehovah, he says, Thou deaf and dumb spirit, I charge thee, come out of him, and enter no more into him. That's the Lord who speaks. Just as he did in the beginning, when he said, Let there be light. Now he stands before this teenage son and says, Get out, and never enter him into him anymore. Just as the Lord had calmed the ways of the Sea of Galilee, so this devil leaves straightway. Not after a long while, many months later, straightway, right away. Now the devil, of course, doesn't leave without expressing his enmity and hostility against Christ and his people. He has one last opportunity to show his power in this child and his hatred for Christ by having this young man fall on the ground, foam at the mouth, and writhe in these horrible convulsions, which should indicate to us as God's people as we sojourn through this life, that is a clear picture of the attitude of the devil and the world to you. They hate Christ, and they hate all that belong to him. Christ declares to this young man, you are my territory. Devil, that's part of my kingdom. Get out of him. In response, the devil says, I hate you, and almost injures this man upon the ground. That's the kind of hatred the devil has for you when he tempts you into sin. He's not your friend, trying to be nice to you. He wants to destroy you spiritually. And apart from Christ, we would be helpless to deliver ourselves from that tyranny. We're like that boy 
apart from Christ on the ground, dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Christ takes the initiative. Christ is our Lord. Does not wait for the teenage boy to wave at Jesus or lift up his hand or wiggle his finger to give some kind of indication that he is worthy to be now moved up and brought back to life. Or takes up that which is dead and makes it alive. Raises this boy into life again. Physical life and also spiritual life and communion in his family. For now he can speak the word and hear the word. Confessed by his father and then speak it to his father again and his mother in spiritual fellowship together in their covenant home. And so the Lord gives his answer to that cry. He gives unto us that spiritual life, the spiritual eye, the spiritual ear, the spiritual tongue. We as Christians in the office of believer must have to fulfill our work as prophets who confess the name and the word of Jesus Christ in all areas of our life. And that's the Lord's sure answer unto us. He will answer us out of his grace. Notice the Lord works in us that faith by which we confess our need, confess that only Christ can do something about that need, and then works the faith by which we receive that faith through his word. So that we look to him, we depend upon him, we focus on him, We confess him to be our all, and by faith in him, we walk in the paths of righteousness and thankfulness to him. That's how the Lord works that faith, that believing, that understanding of the truth, by the activity of believing. How does he do that? Orderly, wise work of the working of faith in you and me? He demonstrates that when he bends over and reaches down and takes the boy by the hand. That gesture shows and is similar to that work of Christ coming down to us in his mercy. And by that hand by which he comes down to us in his mercy, through his word, he works in us that faith. By that hand of mercy, he reaches down through the preaching of the gospel, works in you and me the gift of faith. Doesn't do that to everyone who hears the gospel. He hardens those who are not his sheep. Though we deserve to be hardened in our unbelief because of our sin, nevertheless, for his mercy's sake, he works in you and me faith. And the mercy by which he reaches down and takes hold of us is that mercy which is constant, which is never-ending, which is everlasting, which is new every morning. It is the mercy behind that long-suffering and the answer to his question, how long will I suffer with you, O faithless generation? Be long-suffering to us were his sheep not willing that any of his sheep should perish, but that all should come to faith. And that answer of the Lord, confirmed by the miracle, is sure. The Lord will reach down from his heavenly throne and take hold of us by his word through the preaching of the gospel. He will do that. The proof of that is in what the gesture points to. The coming down of Christ into our flesh onto that road of humiliation concerning which Moses and Elijah in the previous verses spoke to Jesus about, encouraged him to continue on that pathway, which he did. He left that glory which he received for a brief moment in the conviction, I must continue down that road and down and down and down until I, in the place of my people, die on the cross for you and me. 
earn for us by his own blood the right to have that gift of faith. Then the lifting up points to that work of the Father in raising Christ from the dead in his resurrection and receiving that immortality and life in glory. That's the glory, that's the life which he works in us so that in our covenant head, yes, we do sit in heavenly places with him now. Do you believe that? Lord confirms in the miracle that he will conquer that unbelief that yet cleaves to us, which we're prone to doubt that which the Lord declares to us. I will conquer that unbelief so that you will declare, Lord, I believe. Believe, beloved, he is your ever Present help in trouble, even in that trouble, wrestling with that unbelief and overcoming by faith. The day comes, beloved, surely, when the unbelief will be removed from you, when the Lord will take you up with, to him in glory, and when you will see him as you are seen, face to face, in a faith that has no interruption, but sees very clearly, surely, He is your Lord and Savior. And that certain hope of seeing Christ as he is, in all of his glory. Until then, may your earnest confession be, as it was the Father's in the text, Lord, I believe, constantly be helping me to overcome my unbelief. Amen. Let us pray. Father who art in heaven, grant to us that word of our Lord Jesus Christ, the very word by which he declares his glory, the word by which he declares, hear him, may that word heal us. And by the Spirit that work faith in us, so that we may respond, Lord, we believe. Nevertheless, continue to help us regarding our ever-present unbelief. That unbelief may not take dominion over us. We may, under grace, be faithful to thee, walking in true faith and love with thee all the days of our lives, until we soon arrive with thee in glory, to worship thee in the perfection and the fullness of that faith in Jesus Christ, which thou hast promised us. Sustain us, Heavenly Father. In our week and our work this week and our earthly pilgrimage. For Jesus' sake, amen.